Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Today, we are thrilled to be talking with our friend and colleague, Sheila Katz. Sheila is the CEO of the National Council of Jewish Women, which is a network of 180,000 advocates across the U.S. and Israel advancing the rights of women, children, and families. Since her start as the CEO, Sheila has overseen the founding of the Rabbis for Repro campaign, building a network of over 1,000 rabbis and Jewish clergy promoting reproductive health rights and justice. Additionally, under Sheila's leadership, NCJW has made advancing anti-racism efforts at the national and local levels a priority, showing the intersectionality of racial justice in all of the organization's main advocacy issues. Sheila holds an MS in teaching from Pace University and BA in politics from Ithaca College. That's so cool. Sheila was named by the Jerusalem Post as one of 2020's 50 most influential Jews in the world and was named by the Center for American Progress as one of 2020's faith leaders to watch. And she sits on the board of governors of Tel Aviv University. And those are just a few of the interests that we have in common. Sheila is joining us on Kindreds today to talk about issues that matter a lot to all of us, reproductive rights, religious freedom, and how that intersects with abortion access. And we'll also be talking about the rise of hate in our country, in particular anti-Semitism, and what we can be doing to push back. So Sheila, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. This is so much fun. Thank you, Ashley and Katie. Yeah. Yes. We're so glad to have you. So before we get into the heart of the conversation, we wanted to just chat for a minute about how we all know each other. Sheila, I think I met you at the Supreme Court, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I had a big abortionist kosher sign and we found each other and uh, we've been friends ever since. (laughs) Yeah, we both spoke. I think uh, it's so funny who we get to meet and in the context, but for faith leaders showing up and protesting the last several years around the rise of um, laws targeting our bodies has has shown me kind of who shows up. So it was lovely to first meet you there. Yes, it was. I feel like the Supreme Court is a place where like a lot of the magic happens in the movement because that's where everybody shows up. It's almost like little reunion or speed dating or something like that. Um, So so that was that was our first meeting. But then um, Ashley and I got together after um, the murder of George Floyd and talked about the need to be having more intentional conversations Mm -hmm. among white leaders and, and repro to talk about our whiteness and what it means to be in leadership. And um, we invited you and you have been part of those conversations as well. I just feel so grateful that I was included in that. I think, listen, everybody has a responsibility to figure out how they can work every single day to be anti-racist, but particularly for white leaders of organizations focused on reproductive access there's work for us to do and work for us to do for our organizations mm-hmm. um, since this really does center around people of color. So I've really appreciated kind of having a safe space um, with both of you and your leadership and convening that to navigate it and think about what it really means as a white CEO um, leading an organization that's taking on this issue. And, um, and so, uh, you know, I aspire to be an ally every day and I feel like so much of the conversations we've had have helped, you know, me take different actions on behalf of the organization to make sure we're centering our work around people of color. So I'm just particularly grateful for both of you for pulling us together and leading and saying that we need to talk and think about this together. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And it has allowed us to build genuine relationship with each other mm-hmm. so that we felt like we could reach out to you to talk with us today. And we're really looking forward to, you know, your perspective on, on anti-Semitism. Again, like most of our audience is from a Christian background. So just knowing you and having that level of trust, be able to invite you into having this conversation means a lot to us. So we're, we're really appreciative of, of the time that we've gotten to spend together. Um, so before we talk more about kind of the heart of things, can you share more about the work of the National Council of Jewish Women? We heard a little bit about it, but what are you working on right now that excites you? Yeah, well, it's just some background. If folks here don't know us, we're actually the oldest Jewish women's organization in the country. We're 128 years old. Wow. Um, and we actually just hit now over 200,000 advocates. Wow. Which is pretty amazing. We're in every state in this country. And we're guided by our Jewish values to improve the lives of women, children, and families um, who are often the most vulnerable members of our communities. So we don't always um, work specifically with Jewish communities. Sometimes we do, but our work really centers around the most vulnerable and for us is framed um, by Jewish values. And our core issues right now tend to be actually foundational issues that help women, children, and families. So safeguarding and expanding access to reproductive health rights and justice is certainly one of them. And it's becoming more and more important because it's it's becoming under attack more uh-huh. and more. And so we need to be speaking out. Um, protecting and promoting the right to vote is also one of our core issues. Uh, we, can't, we can't actually make change in this country unless we have access to the polls mm-hmm. um, and making sure everybody has equity in that space. And then um, an issue we've taken a leadership role on for several decades is actually making sure that Um, our federal judges are fair, independent, and qualified. So we vet federal judges. We try to push through, you know, not actually whether they believe on all the issues that we believe in, but we want a nonpartisan, fair judiciary to make sure, particularly when families are going to court or when children crossing the border are going to court, that they have judges that are able to receive them and to think strategically on their own in a non-activist way to fair conclusions. And so we do a lot of work in that space. Um, and we actually do work in Israel and Palestine as well. We, we started there actually right after the Holocaust um, to help take care of children, Holocaust survivors. Mm. And that work has morphed over the years into just work on gender equity. So we run a program for diverse um, people uh, focused on gender equity and focused on gender-based violence to make sure that Arab Israelis, Israelis, Bedouins, all are able to come together and fight gender-based violence together. Um, so those are some of the work we do. Um, but for anyone listening, I just say we're all over the country and chances are close to you, there's National Council of Jewish Women uh, ad- advocates and sections who are eager to partner across faith and difference to just help women, children, and families. And so that's some of our work um, that we do. And I've been the CEO now for two years, um, which, which uh, what a crazy two years it has mm-hmm. been. Um, but yes. I, I feel really, really proud every day to get to run this organization. Yeah, you really went into the deep end of the pool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I say all the time, I don't recommend being a new CEO during an unprecedented global health pandemic. Right. Uh, um, but, yeah, you know, I, I feel, yeah, you understand. I, I feel really... Um, grateful that our work is relevant. And if anything, protecting women, children, and families in a year 
where our country has gone back to the stats of 1988 about women in the workforce, mm. since people mm. didn't prioritize childcare right away, mm-hmm. it just it has made our work more relevant than ever. And um, we've been really proud about both the legislative accomplishments and the on the ground direct service we've been able to do this past year to help. That's awesome. You know, this is the first time I've heard you kind of lay out everything that NCJW does. And it's just, it's amazing how, um, how many issues y'all are working on and just how far your reach is. So let's talk about religious freedom. <laughs> let's. Yes. <laughs> let's. We hear religious freedom used a lot by evangelical Protestant Christians and Catholics who together make up the majority of Christians in the United States. So I did some research for this episode, um, just to make sure I had the stats right. And I was really, I was kind of surprised by this. I don't know, Sheila, if it surprises you. But according to Pew Research, Christianity is the self-identified religion of around 70% of Americans. And for comparison, less than 2% of Americans identify as Jewish. And we will share these resources in the show notes for folks who are interested in where we're getting this information. So... Recently, religious freedom has been invoked as a way for a member of a dominant religion, usually Christianity, to exercise control over others. We saw this when Hobby Lobby sued the government so that their insurance carrier wouldn't have to provide birth control for their employees. We see it from pharmacists who refuse to fill prescriptions for certain types of birth control or abortion pills, or municipal clerks who don't want to issue marriage licenses for same-sex couples. We also see how Catholic hospitals are allowed to refuse patients access to birth control, sterilization procedures, treatment for miscarriage, infertility treatments, or abortions, even though Catholic hospitals now account for one in every six hospital beds in the United States. And in all of these cases, religious freedom applies to the majority religion. But what does religious freedom mean for minority religions like Judaism? Yeah, I mean, that's that, I'm just processing that set, too. I, I know it. I know that Jews make up... 2% of the population, but sometimes you forget about it. And I'll just start by saying, you know, I think so much of this past year, particularly around um, George Floyd and the reckoning that we've had around systemic racism, has taught us to look at systems and to say, who was in the room when these things systems were being designed mm-hmm. and who was it designed for, right? And so clearly um, there's so much we need to do to Um, fix systemic racism in our country and kind of redesign the system as it is. But let's also be clear, as we're talking here, you know, our country wasn't certainly not designed for women um, Mm -hmm. and also not designed for Jews and minority religions. You know, we we get breaks on Sundays around male because Sunday is a holy day Mm -hmm. for one particular religion. Mm -hmm. We have off on holidays around one particular religion and, and just you know, we're still fighting this crazy fight. You know, the University of Wisconsin-Madison just, you know, is getting all this backlash because their first day of classes this year is on Rosh Hashanah, the holiest Mm. day of the Jewish year. And Jewish students are like, I shouldn't have to choose between going to my first day of classes and observing this holiday. And so I think Jews and Muslims in particular often are, you know, um, coming together to point out that, like, you know, the things that people don't have to think about um, who are in the majority religion in this country are things we always have to think about because the system and our country wasn't designed for us. Our holy days are not days that we get off. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that too often when people think about religious freedom, they are thinking about Christianity. But religious freedom exists 
to protect minority religions. And we know that religious freedom was intended, intended being the key word, to shield um, and protect free exercise, such as when a Sikh student was prohibited from wearing a turban at school, or when a Jewish government worker was refused time off for Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. And, and we know that religious freedom should be a shield to protect and not a sword to discriminate mm. or a sword that can discriminate and harm others. But that's what's happening right now. You know, people are using this so-called religious liberty. And if you're, you can't see a podcast, but I just put that in air quotes, religious liberty, air quotes. <laughs> but like, it's not religious liberty if you're using it to harm others, uh-huh, right? It's not right. religious liberty to deny prospective parents from government-funded foster care and adoption right. agencies. Mm-hmm. And it's not religious liberty to decimate the Affordable Care Act's birth control benefit. And it's not religious liberty to authorize refusals of care, particularly abortion and gender-affirming care based on the religious and moral beliefs of the healthcare entities and providers. Because just as you said, with hospitals in this country, it's kind of like, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for my family? What does that mean if doctors are able to choose not to do that for their religion, but you just said Jews are 2% of the the world, like if my religion says something different. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so, and I think that's probably where we're headed about Judaism and abortion access and what our faith says about this. But but I would just say for for in the same way um, white people are having a reckoning in this country about what it must be like, because one can never fully understand to be um, black or indigenous or a person of color in this country. I would invite people who are Christian to begin thinking about the ease in which they can navigate a world that was designed for them and what it means for people of faith who are not Christian or Catholic, who have to somehow demand over and over again the access we so deserve and should be able to receive in this country. Mm, mm, yes. <laughs> That's a good word. Yeah. That's a good word right there. Yeah. <laughs> There's so much to unpack that we could yeah. we could go into each of those examples in detail and make entire episodes about them. But mm-hmm. given the, the shared work that we all do around reproductive freedom issues, um, we wanted to talk specifically about how religious freedom impacts abortion access. And we know we have Ashley, this Mississippi law that's now made it its way to the Supreme court. Mm -hmm. We're, we're going to be starting arguments in November and we are, it's crystal clear now that the state of Mississippi wants to overturn Roe. They have said that now explicitly that this, this is a direct challenge to Roe and to Casey. And, um, and we all know as people of faith who work in this space that, this is not just about bodily autonomy. This is about Christian supremacy yep. um, and creating a theocracy in this country. So Sheila would love to hear from your perspective, what religious freedom has to do with abortion access in the U S yeah, because this is a constitutional issue, but it is a religious freedom issue. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. first I'll start generally, right? People of faith support compassionate laws. Like that's what it means to be a person of faith, yes. right? You're, you support things that are compassionate and I got to tell you, healthcare is one of the most compassionate uh, things we can provide for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I would say overwhelmingly, and I'm going to dive into Judaism, 
But I, I think there's a lot of misperception around faith and abortion and overwhelmingly mm-hmm. people of faith support access to abortion. For sure. I think when, you know, this is really intertwined reproductive health rights and justice with religious freedom, um, because even as the overwhelming public narrative of faith and abortion focuses on the beliefs of anti-abortion Christians, right? Not all yes. Christians, just anti-abortion Christians get the platform it, it becomes more essential that we lift up the voices of people of faith who are advocating for expanding reproductive rights, mm-hmm. including access to abortion, not in spite of their religion, but because of it. So let me just mm-hmm. like be very clear for people who don't know. Judaism permits abortion and sometimes requires it. So for somebody else to tell us or me or any of us who can get pregnant that we can't have an abortion violates our religious freedom. Mm -hmm. And some of the laws we're seeing popping up lately, like you got to get a death certificate for a fetus. In Judaism, a fetus is not a life. And some of you might know this, if you're friends with folks who lean a little bit more religious, you'll know that Jews usually don't get baby gifts or have Mm -hmm. baby showers until after a baby is born. And while a lot of people say it's because we're superstitious, The real root of that is because we don't believe a fetus is a life. And every faith has the ability to determine when they think life begins. So as we're having this, you know, debate in this country, it is kind of blowing my mind because I'm like, we have to allow individuals to make decisions for so many reasons over their bodies because we should. It's the right thing to do. It's how it ought to operate. But also when you start legislating, When life begins, having death certificates, punishing people for having abortions, punishing doctors Mm -hmm. for providing abortions, you're totally violating all the protections that should be there about religious freedom, particularly for Jews, but also for many Muslims who would see their faith saying something similar. And so that's why this past year we worked to say we need to be louder as Jews around this and we can't Mm -hmm. accept that the narrative of faith is that it clashes with abortion. And that's why we launched our Rabbis for Repro campaign. And I got to tell you, it was only within a few months we had over a thousand rabbis signed on. That's amazing. And not, right? It is amazing as you think about faith. And it wasn't just a thousand progressive rabbis. You know, we have a thousand rabbis across ideological, you know, um, backgrounds. We have Republican rabbis and Democrat rabbis. We've got rabbis who don't talk about their politics. But in, in Judaism, there's often very different perspectives of law. It's one of the things we love about our, our faith is that mm-hmm. we get to question and, and debate. Um, and on abortion, you know, there might be some wiggle room here and there for people to say, you know, it, it, Judaism requires abortion under these very specific circumstances. But all of these rabbis and the majority of Jews in this country believe that abortion is healthcare and that it's actually fundamental to our faith. And so um, I'm really proud that we have so many people now in our clergy stepping up because one in four people who can get pregnant in this country have abortions. And you know what? That includes people of faith. Yes. And they should be able to go to their faith leaders to talk about it because sometimes it's not traumatic. It's a decision. It's empowering. And they made it. Sometimes it is. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. sometimes people want to be able to talk about what it means when their fetus isn't viable and they have to terminate a pregnancy. 
They want to talk to their faith leaders about it. So, you know, there, there's the side of this, that's the advocacy side of mobilizing our rabbis and sending them to the hill, which we are doing. But I just have to say from a person of faith, it makes me feel good that these rabbis have said openly to their entire communities, I'm here for you if you want to talk and about an abortion that you've had, or if you're considering terminating a pregnancy and you want to talk about it, because that's what it should be in our faith communities. Mm-hmm. This should not be taboo. This should be something that we get to talk about. So, so I think we've got a real big problem in this country right now that's really just about punishing women and people who can get pregnant and punishing women and people who can get pregnant for having sex, which mm-hmm. is how I think this, that where this all comes from, the notion that we should only have sex if we're married and we should have only ha- have sex to make babies. But I hope that people listening understand this really is a religious freedom issues. Heartbeat bills? Jews don't believe that there's a heartbeat. It, it goes, it contradicts our understanding of life and we are entitled to that viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And we need more people of diverse faiths, whether doing this for your faith or not, to stand up for our religious freedom in this moment. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Sheila, you're so right. And I. this is what Katie's work with RCRC, my work with Faith and Women, well, in Faith and Women's perspective, I can speak for me. Katie, you can speak for RCRC. But, you know, I do a lot of work with Christian clergy and people of faith in Mississippi trying to, I don't know, encourage the same level of examination of, like, why are we letting this one particular denomination of our religion speak for all of us? And why are we allowing this one very narrow interpretation of Scripture to speak for everyone and to make rules that affect everyone, including people that don't believe our religion. And it is the work of everyone um, and people of diverse faiths to speak up as well. But I'm also just really aggravated with Christians (laughs) who aren't speaking up and saying, this doesn't actually reflect what we believe either, (laughs) you know? Yeah. I I was going to say, obviously, like, I feel like the trifecta of like people not in the room right now, I'm thinking of Jamie Manson, our dear friend who runs Catholics for Choice. And I think one of one of the things that I'm learning and seeing is is that people who are Christian do support yes. access to abortion. I think the the misperception is is the mic has been given to the loudest yes. voices who do not represent the majority, and it's yes. misrepresenting people of faith. It's not for me to say it's misrepresenting Christians, but what I'm hearing from Christians, Catholics, mm-hmm. it's misrepresenting them. Mm-hmm. And and the right. only way to reclaim that. And to take the faith narrative back is for exactly what we're doing right here Mm -hmm. is for us to be talking about this as something that's not conflicting. And it's going to take a while to create such culture change, but like no longer can we tiptoe or like whisper the word abortion. Like we have to be saying this out Mm -hmm. loud because this is a medical procedure that people who can get pregnant and that's a term I'm using intentionally since trans men, many trans men can also get pregnant and not all women can get pregnant, right? Mm-hmm. This this is a decision that they should be able to make with their doctors, yep. with whatever faith they have in mind. And I, and we know this, if somebody does not want to have an abortion, they shouldn't have an abortion. Mm-hmm. That's totally fine. And if somebody wants to have an abortion, they should be able to legally and they should have access to. Mm-hmm. Right. So much of it, I think that I, why folks are not willing to speak up, even if they have a belief, 
that abortion sh- should be legal, if not accessible, because some people don't think it should be accessible and they think it should be legal, um, is, is internalized abortion stigma. And I don't think that that's something that we talk enough about, that mm-hmm. in order to be bold and outspoken about the moral good of abortion, which is what I think it is, it's a moral good, we have to do that daily work of confronting abortion stigma. It is just like confronting mm-hmm. internalized sexism, white supremacy, Christian supremacy. It is daily work of saying, what about this makes me uncomfortable? And that's why that's why conservative um, extremist Christian voices, they just reinforce the narrative of shame and stigma that we've all been swimming in. So that's why they're they're able to say what they say, because it reinforces the narrative that's already in existence. And so speaking up against it really does require a lot of internal mm-hmm. work individually and institutional work around we have to confront abortion stigma. What is it about it that makes us uncomfortable? And really confront that and say, and in spite of that, people deserve access. They also deserve compassionate accompaniment. Yep. When you were yes. talking, Sheila, about rabbis saying, hey, I'm available. It's like folks don't need to just be able to access the care. They need to have people to process it with. Yeah. Because yep. for many people, it is a complicated decision. And that's OK and good and very human. Right. Like big decisions that we make can be complicated. We can have yep. feelings about them. And that doesn't make it wrong. And I think that that's where I see one of the biggest gaps. And I think, again, it has to do with internalized abortion stigma that we've got to confront and dismantle and figure out where it comes from and then divest from it every single day. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because I have to like now that I'm in this job, I talk about abortion a whole lot more, uh-huh, you know, right. obviously. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I have so many friends who have had abortions that I didn't know about. Yes, right. And it kind of reminded yes. me that, like, prior to like you know taking over the helm of an organization that focuses on this, I hadn't done my part with my friends and my family. Mm-hmm. And I think it really is a good place to start to open up conversations around abortion and to ask people, you know, no one should have to share something if they don't want to, but to say, you know, I'm on a journey learning about this and I'm realizing, you know, if I just survey the landscape of my friends, one in four people who can get pregnant under 45, right? Um, chances are, you know, everybody knows somebody who's had an abortion. Everybody loves someone who's had an abortion, mm-hmm. but they shouldn't have to navigate that in silence. And so I think one of a good takeaway that I, you know, Katie's, I'm just thinking about from what you said is, you know, everybody should be thinking about what comes up for them and how to unlearn what they need to mm-hmm. unlearn. Like, you know, we, I, I was taught you're irresponsible or you must be, you know, if, if right. this happens. And, and to be honest, all of this is like rooted in this myth, like also of who needs abortions. It is not typically a teenager who, um, you know, for the first time, um, you know, has had sex and now needs an abortion. That happens, of course, but the majority of people who need abortions are are women who are already moms who can't afford a child. Mm-hmm. And when you put it in perspective that way, you think about, especially as people of faith, what it means to force somebody to have a child that they don't feel they can take care of. That's not okay, and nobody should have to go through that. But I think there's so much stigma about what we've been taught about whose fault it is or what, like, and the reality yeah, it's is... judgment. Mm-hmm. Exactly. There's so many, I can, like, everyone I know who has had to have an abortion has a different experience with it and a mm-hmm. different story with it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And some are, like, really empowering, and some, like, a friend of mine who's wanted to be pregnant for so long who found out late into a pregnancy that the fetus wasn't viable. That was a super painful moment. And let me just say, she was in a hospital 
was able to have the abortion she needed. And I learned afterwards that clergy in hospitals, if you're disproportionately Christian, can choose whether or not to show up for people in those moments. And people terminating their pregnancy in hospitals have been asking for clergy support and have no one showing up for them. Wow. And that is just I didn't know that devastating. Either. So there's more work for us to do, again, not just with Jewish <laughs> yes. clergy, for all clergy. And, and look, let's just put this into perspective. This is clergy that also supports and will sit with somebody who has murdered somebody but asks for clergy because they're injured and in a hospital. And so let's just mm. hold this narrative that regardless of what you think is happening here, you know, we have a responsibility to show up and support people in their time of need. And again, I don't want to say all abortions are traumatic in any way because they are certainly not, but we could do a better job, all of us, in acknowledging how different each of these situations are. Right, right. And I hope just having these conversations with our friends and families so they know that each of us are people that they can go to. Mm-hmm. And like, right. I'm now someone my friends go to when they have to terminate a pregnancy to talk about it. And I feel Same. honored that I get to be a part of yes. their life in this way and show up for them as a friend in that way. That's what my next book's about. This is all what it's about. Yes. Yeah. Pre-order today. <laughs> complicated choice coming 20 2022 in january (laughs) i'm very excited to read that (laughs) yeah so should we shift gears a little bit are we ready sure so on kindreds as you can tell we uh, don't shy away from topics or words and phrases that make people uncomfortable like abortion or white supremacy or christian supremacy and we haven't talked much about anti-semitism specifically on our show but we know we need to be talking about it more especially given that our audience is mostly christian the ways that anti-semitism shows up in christian spaces So we're going to, Katie and I are going to cover that a little bit more in our next episode. But Sheila, can you talk about the rise of hate, specifically the rise of anti-Semitic rhetoric and violence in our country? And what I'm curious about is, do you think there's more anti-Semitism now? Or do you think it was always there and it's just more out in the open now? Yeah. I mean, I'm just going to, there's more anti-Semitism now. Okay. I feel pretty definitive. So I'll say, we know the past year and a half has been difficult to say the least. Mm -hmm. And there are many groups of people who have been experiencing a spike in hate crimes, particularly the Asian community, um, in regards to, you know, really challenging rhetoric and language around COVID, among other things. Um, People of color uh, historically have experienced um, hate and we're we're able to see more of it now. Um, But also, as we're thinking about this past year, anti-Semitic incidents are at a historically high level across the United States. And Mm. according to a recent Pew study on Jewish Americans, three quarters say there's more anti-Semitism than there was five years ago. And just over half, around 53 percent, say that as a Jewish person in the United States, they feel less safe now than they did five Mm. years ago. And this is particularly heightened by Jews who wear distinctively religious attire, such as a yarmulke or kippah, head covering. Mm. Um, They're particularly likely to say they feel less safe. Um, and just to put it into perspective a little more, Anti-Defamation League's most recent audit on anti-Semitic incidents in the United States recorded more than 2,100 acts of assault, vandalism, and harassment, which is an increase of 12% over the previous year. And this is the highest level of incidents 
since their tracking began in 1979. And this year included five fatalities directly linked to anti-Semitic violence and another 91 individuals targeted in physical assaults. And and I think after Charlottesville, there was a lot of conversations around white supremacy, Mm -hmm. clearly. Um, There were Nazi salutes, swastika flags, shouting that Jews will not replace us. Mm-hmm. You know, so so what we're seeing right now that's super challenging is there has been permission given for neo-Nazis to come out of hiding, um, which on the one side of the anti-Semitic spectrum, um, you see it happening over here from a group like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's been and, and that that's white supremacy, I think, is the biggest domestic threat to our country and needs to be addressed. I agree. Impacts, <laughs> yes. You know, um, people of color disproportionately and Jews. And let me just. You know, being Jewish isn't, um, you know, doesn't, isn't synonymous with whiteness. 15 to 20% of Jews are Jews of color. And for that audience, navigating both racism and anti Semitism mm. this year is particularly compounded. Um, it's also worth noting most Jews are in multi faith families. More than 70% of non Orthodox Jews are in multi faith families. Um, so th- there's, there's no, uh, you know, one way to be a Jew or one way to look like a Jew. There are Jews who are Asians um, as well. Um, but I just think, um, particularly in a progressive community, I just want to say, where I sit, I have found progressive organizations very comfortable calling out white supremacy, but very silent calling out the anti-Semitism we've seen recently, which has happened Interesting. Um, in response to a perceived, you know, to what's happening in Israel. Like, and to be honest... I'm happy to have a conversation around what's wrong with the Israeli government, what we need to do better. I'm happy to, that that's a conversation for another day, preferably over drinks. Um, but when anybody takes, um, targets a group of people to say something's happening over there and therefore I'm going to go punch a Jew in the face. Mm, right. That, mm-hmm. that is anti-Semitism. And it has been, and I'm going to say this as clearly as I can, devastating to not hear people speak up about what has been happening in our country in the last several months, mm. because this has been happening in New York City, in California, everywhere. Most people I know, synagogues, have been vandalized. NCJW, we received harmful phone calls. We are all in a heightened awareness mm. of what is happening because people think uh, are using a false narrative of dual loyalty for us around Israel. But no matter what, Punching Jews, killing Jews, hurting Jews. This should be simple for people to call out, but we are not seeing it in the press. I mean, I just shared some of these stats. If people don't know about it, it's because people don't think it's worthy to cover. Mm. Like, how used to anti-Semitism are we in this country where it doesn't even make a news article if somebody is physically assaulted because they're Jewish? And then you have now Jews really understanding what's happening and watching as all of our allies who we've seen speak up around racism and anti-Asian hate and so many other forms of hate, who have watched us speak up in those spaces, say nothing and or say it's too political mm. for us to get involved right now. And I got to tell you, it is not political to be able to say that anti-Semitism is bad or hate of any form is bad. Mm-hmm. And if somebody feels that way, we have to hold up the mirror to them and say, we're not asking you to take a position on what's happening in the Middle East. We're asking you to call out the fact that there are people running around our country right now 
targeting Jews and intentionally harming them. And so I feel riled up about this, to be honest. I'm not someone who, you know, honestly, five years ago would have been talking about this issue, but we routinely speak against all forms of hate. We're no less compelled to do so when our own Jewish community is a target. And we all know that if we really want to create, you know, an equitable, fair, compassionate country, that we have to call out all forms of hate as they're all linked to each other as a way to end hatred and bigotry for everyone. And so I just, I hope as people are hearing me, if they haven't heard of this, they'll start Googling this to Mm -hmm. see what's been happening, but also that they'll consider if they run a church or if they run a local nonprofit to check in with their Jewish neighbors and organizations, Mm. because I, I felt really sad when this spike started happening and no one reached out. Yeah. And, and, and I wondered about it because I feel like we've been a really good ally to groups as hate has been targeted. And as I've, and I've started calling lately to say, Hey, can I just ask? Like, did you know? Why has it been quiet? And I, and I got a lot of, we knew. Um, but we didn't think it was like so significant and, mm. and we didn't want to be political. And so I just, um, the Jewish community is hurting right now. And um, and the anti-Semitism we're experiencing now is different than what we experienced at Tree of Life. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and everyone was so amazing about showing up and supporting the Jewish community then. But what we need to ask is, particularly of our progressive friends, that right now, as anti-Semitism is coming from a different angle in this country, um, that we don't make this partisan in any way, shape, or form, mm-hmm. right? That all anti-Semitism from whomever is perpetuating it is bad. And for me, I just, the last thing I'll say that Jews and particularly Jewish leaders have been experiencing lately is we're being asked our thoughts on a variety of things in order to show up in the door, right? Mm. We're being asked, well, well, are you willing to denounce Israel? Uh. And then you could be in this coalition. But I got to tell you, I vote in the United States. I'm a United States citizen. And we call out when Muslims or Jews, either of us, are being told that we have dual loyalty, that somehow we have mm. to have this perspective. Mm. Jews don't feel the same way about Israel. We don't feel the same way about most political situations. And so to put the burden of a government from somewhere else on us and to say you can only show up here if, You can only be student body president if you share your perspective on this. And this happens to Muslims, too. We're seeing it right now with an amazing candidate for the Small Business Administration through the White House being told that he can't even have his hearing until he addresses his thoughts on the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. And I'm like, how on earth? Why would you ask that? Is it just because he's Muslim? Like, that's not appropriate. And so right now we're seeing the spike in anti-Semitism around Jews not being welcome in progressive spaces. In addition to the violence, that's another form of anti-Semitism to say, I don't know if I want you here, or I don't know if I'm going to work with you because you're Jewish. And and so that's these are all areas that we're going to have to be more vocal mm-hmm. about and speak up on. Oh, I just so appreciate you, mm-hmm. your candor, your, your vulnerability, yeah. and also your call to action. I'm really listening and hearing and internalizing for myself. And I hope listeners will as well. Like this really is a call to action for those of us who have not been paying attention, who have not been speaking up um, to, to do something that's quite simple, which is to call out 
any act of violence or act of hatred towards someone for simply being of a different faith or of a different race, right? Like this is this is pretty basic stuff yeah. here. And I think we're all capable of holding nuances to say Middle East is a very complicated situation and we can also denounce any act of violence against a Jewish person in this country or anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And it's as a that podcast hard. that like goes into difficult conversations, I think people should lean into those. They should yeah. have these conversations. Totally. There's room for challenging conversations and debate about Israel. You know, we hold true that criticism of Israel um, is not inherently anti-Semitic. And we also acknowledge that criticism of Israel is sometimes weaponized as a cover for anti-Semitic beliefs mm. and actions. And we have to hold these truths together mm-hmm. in all their complexity. But when we see, you know, violence in the Middle East surge, it, it lately has meant a vi- violence in the United States against Jews have surged. And, um, and that is not an appropriate response. Uh, right? There are many things people can do to respond to changing political environments and climates, um, the occupation, whatever it is that people want to address. Punching Jews hurting Jews and excluding Jews should not be among the responses when those things happen. Yeah. Well, if there's any articles or um, anything you'd like to share with our listenership, let us know. We'll put it on our show notes for people to read. If there's any um, perspectives that you think need to be elevated, we'd love to do that. Is there anything else that you would like to share about maybe things you'd like to see change about the ways that Judaism is perceived or talked about in the U.S.? Um, Are there any recommendations, I guess, what people can do, especially people with privilege, can do to push back against anti-Semitism when they encounter it? Yeah, I, I think deeply ingrained in many people in this country, as we think about all the unlearning we have to do, mm-hmm. is the um, link between Jews and privilege, which continues to be an anti-Semitic trope. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying, you know, I have white privilege as a white person and I have privilege financially. You know, everybody needs to navigate that individually. But the, the, it is not true that Jews disproportionately have a greater privilege than others. And as people have that as the mindset in which they're engaging this, it's one of the reasons sometimes these things don't get covered. They're like, well, well, the Jewish people don't need this because they already have these things. Mm. But that is actually how all the anti-Semitism historically that we've had has been perpetuated, that Jews control things, that Jews have all the power. Mm. And so I think it's a challenging moment as each of us are trying to own our power and privilege. And as a Jewish people, we want to own where there is power and privilege, but we do not want to cross into that space that is rooted in anti-Semitism that says that all Jews must mean X, Y, or Z. And, and I think what I'll say is we're starting to talk about this more as a Jewish people, but one of the reasons you haven't heard Jews speak up as much around anti-Semitism is because historically in this country, that's how we assimilated. Mm. We assimilated, you know, we assimilated and gained more power by being self-deprecating, by not mm. standing up for ourselves. There's a whole like great book, How Jews Became White People in this country, which is just fascinating to think about because there was a particular point in this country where Jews, regardless of your whiteness, were considered people of color and didn't have the same privileges and weren't afforded some of the same spaces. Um, and then we have to own that our majority whiteness allowed us to assimilate. Um, and that's something that's just interesting for us to navigate and hold now what that meant. But also that there's so much work to do today 
to for everybody to unlearn what we've been told and Jews in particular. It's so fascinating when you understand the history, the way we became, you know, accepted in the United States was through comedy. Right. Mm. And I think we hear a lot about comedic actors and, and Jewish comics, but we were allowed in because we were telling jokes about putting ourselves down. Mm. And we're in a moment decades later where as a people we're saying, actually, we can't be quiet when there's anti-Semitism and we can't make fun of it and we can't do what we have done in the past because this is a problem for us. And this is a problem for everyone who experiences hate in this country. And so I, I guess, you know, my closing thoughts here are really about, you know, um, there's a joke, two Jews, three opinions. There is not a monolithic way to be Jewish in this country. There's not a monolithic way to look Jewish. There's not a monolithic experience of Jews. Um, we are diverse. Um, we have different ideologies. We have different feelings on politics and movies. And, you know, I just think for folks um, engaging, you know, make sure you have Jewish friends yeah. and make sure they're different. And and remember that there's not one way to be Jewish. Um, and particularly, I'm so proud of the growing diversity of the Jewish people. Um, but it does mean that racism impacts Jews because we have Jews of color. And it means we speak out against it because it's the right thing to do for our faith. And we speak out against it to protect Jews of color as well. And I just hope... Um, I guess it, I, there there's a chapter of a book I once wrote for Ibu Patel, um, a handbook for college administrators about navigating hate and uh, the different people of faith write each chapter. So someone Muslim wrote that, that chapter. I wrote the chapter on anti-Semitism on campus. And I remember just giving this one piece of advice that was just like, take out the word Jew and replace it with another minority. And if you would find that to be discriminatory, then it's also discriminatory towards Jews, right? Because there's been all these cases of, of Jews um, not being welcome to run for student body president or to be an honor court, whatever, in, in on campuses. And administrators saying, oh, but like that's because of X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. If you replace Jew with LGBTQ, if you replace Jew with people of color, if you replace Jew with Muslim, would you feel that was wrong because if the answer is yes, <laughs> mm -hmm. then it is also wrong when it's targeting Jews. And so I just welcome people to think about um, how our world is designed, what we can do to better stand up for each other, and to know, you know, that the Jewish people are here to support and be great allies um, to other people of faith, to other minorities, and to people who are vulnerable. And I hope we can all go on our journey to allyhood together, because nobody's perfect. We're all going to make mistakes. But we have a responsibility every single day to try to make our world better for everyone else. Sheila, this has been so wonderful. And so an wonderful. Honor, really. Yeah. To learn from you, even as someone who gets to hang with you a lot, I've really learned a lot from this conversation. We covered quite a range of We topics, did. So, <laughs> so thank much. Thank you for hanging with us um, and just sharing with our audience. I know people are going to love this conversation and learn so much and mm -hmm. take and take action as a result. So we're really, really grateful. We want to make sure that people can stay connected with you and with NCJW. So where, what's the best way for people to find you and to connect with NCJW, either like the national office or their local chapters? Well, social media is always easy. I'm just at Sheila Katz one and NCJW is just at NCJW. Um, but if you go to NCJW.org, 
you can sign up like, uh, you know, our work is driven from Jewish values, but open for everyone. You don't have to identify as Jewish. You don't have to identify as a woman. So if you want our action alerts, if you want to get connected to our work, just go to ncgw.org, put your email in, and then you'll get on our list to be up to date about the things that we're fighting for and be invited to join in on any of, of that work. And from our website, you can look at our local sections to see if you have one close to you, if you want to show up at any local events or build relationships there. You can tell them I sent you. Love it. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well, that is it for this episode. On our next episode, Katie and I will go deeper into the ways, both subtle and overt, that anti-Semitism shows up in Christian spaces and teaching. I know I have a lot to learn about this myself. And we're both learning what it means to dismantle Christian supremacy within ourselves and confronting our own internalized anti-Semitism is a big part of that. So you won't want to miss it. And Katie, I will talk to you then. Talk with you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 